I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of RAIN's Essential Geopolitics podcast. I'm Emma Kami, and today I'll be speaking with RAIN's Eurasia analyst, Matthew Orr, about the 2024 outlook for the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. So what kind of to start us off is the state of play right now at the beginning of the year uh, for the conflict? Yeah, so basically the Ukrainians had uh, plans for a big offensive last year in 2023. That offensive kicked off um, at the beginning of last summer, but really it very quickly fell behind its plans. Uh, and essentially on the, already on the fourth night of, of that offensive, the Ukrainians uh, fundamentally altered the plan and, and really did not go through with any sort of major armored breakthrough attempts. Um, and then they continued to try to take ground in southern Ukraine um, along the, the so-called uh, Melitopol uh, access down there by Tokmak and Orykiv. Uh, but really, it was clear that any gains down there were going to be incremental. Uh, that being said, they, they pushed ahead. They preserved a lot of the equipment that was really, uh, uh, you know, earmarked for, for that offensive. Uh, but on the other hand, they, can, they continued to use large amounts of, of the, 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 the standard equipment you would use for an offensive, things like artillery ammunition. Um, and that offensive really petered out by this November uh, and really made only a small pocket uh, south of Orykiv by Robitnya that is um, you know, still vulnerable and, and obviously well short of, of what the Ukrainians and then many in the West expected. Right as the Ukrainian offensive was culminating, we saw the Russians start an offensive of their own. It was really on two axes, up by Kupiansk in the north and then around Avdiivka. The really more notable of these attacks is, is this Russian offensive around Avdiivka. Avdiivka is a stronghold that has been on the front line between Russian and Ukrainian forces all the way back to the original Donbass conflict starting in 2014. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a suburb of Donetsk that the Ukrainians have been fortifying uh, for, for years. And so the Russians, right, seeing that the Ukrainians were were were, were beginning to lose force, they decided to launch this own, an, an offensive of their own, and it's you know gone a long way in encircling Evdiivka. It didn't fully cut off the city, and now it looks like that that Russian offensive has has also itself culminated and didn't fully encircle the city, but it it's made it quite vulnerable. Um, and having to withdraw from Evdiivka would be a, a very substantial blow. To, the Ukraini to Ukrainian forces because they would essentially be, again, retreating from a place that's much more fortified, you know, with things like concrete bunkers and uh, well, well dung out tunnels and, and fortifications to other positions that they have not been fortifying for nearly nearly as long. Um, so that, I mean, that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, the other thing that's definitely important to note at the beginning of this year is that we the, the the fundamental material advantages have begun to shift back in Russia's favor. There was a brief period during the Ukrainian offensive when it looked like they probably achieved a, a daily uh, artillery uh, ammunition use advantage, but that period appears to have completely passed, and now the, the, the Russians are, by a, by a factor of multiple times, again, 
using much more artillery ammo than, than the Ukrainians, so really able to, to, to suppress Ukrainian forces constantly. And then on top of that, probably even more notable than artillery ammunition, the Russians now have an advantage in these FPV drones, uh, according to some n- n- numerous ways that, that this has been kind of figured out and calculated. But uh, basically now the Russians have more of these, these cheap drones uh, along their frontline forces, which they can use to strike individual Ukrainian soldiers, of course, Ukrainian equipment. Um, and so that's another kind of really concrete material advantage that the Russians now appear to, to have and appear unlikely to, to quickly lose that really positions them well uh, going into to 2024. If you can expand on that a little bit, uh, with the start of a new year, there are a lot of forces that will be at play, notably a Russian election, which will mean a continued Putin presidency. Um, what will Russia's goals be in 2024 in this conflict, and what are their constraints uh, to achieving those goals? Yeah, so for the Russians, I mean, what what's kind of you know on their side is that they don't have super pressing goals at this point, right? I mean, they have taken a lot of the, the Ukrainian territory that they need to easily call the war a victory, and now, moreover, they are ramping up their military-industrial complex. Um, believing that they can get, uh, again, use the advantage that they already have materially over Ukrainian forces, uh, not to mention the manpower advantage, right, what they're able to to, to mobilize. Uh, and they're sitting back and watching political developments in the West uh, and seeing that basically uh, everything's developing in their favor. They're seeing infighting in the West. They're seeing war fatigue, uh, particularly in, in the United States. Um, you know, in, inability to you know, significantly ramp up production of, of key systems to support the Ukrainians. Uh, and so they're thinking that this is on a trajectory where basically, you know, if, if, even if the Ukrainians aren't forced into some sort of negotiation this year, that uh, these developments will only continue to build over the course of 2024. The narrative will simply be that, oh, look, it's, it's us actually who's continuing to take small amounts of territory. Um, and, and therefore, right, continued Western support for Ukraine uh, is 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 uh, you know is is ineffective and unnecessary. Um, and of course, the Russians, as you mentioned, there's gonna there's an election, a so-called election in Russia. Um, on the other hand, Putin is gonna obviously uh, be be reelected, and right, they're gonna be able to demonstrate complete, um, uh, you know, the 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 alleged kind of uh, uh, infragility of of their regime and unity and and so forth. Um, and basically be able to, to say that, right, we, we, we feel well positioned to, to win this war of attrition against the West and the Ukrainians. You guys aren't willing to, to pay the necessary price. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that they, right, they don't have um, a particularly uh, big territorial goal. That being said, they absolutely are going to, as we mentioned in the, in the, to your previous question, they are going to continue to attempt to take ground all along the front, particularly the kind of the northeastern parts of the front, the former line of contact in Donbass, the the northern kind of Kharkiv um, area of of the front. There we're going to see Russian forces uh, try to make these small-scale kind of encirclements, uh, right, just like the Russian offensive uh, in 2023 around Bakhmut, um, what's going on in Avdiivka, continued attacks on Kupiansk. Uh, even potentially new new places, places like New York, um, the Russians are going to try to to take ground and encircle 
these these places where the Ukrainians have been uh, beginning to fortify themselves. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the the biggest constraint for Russia actually is is really um, is not so much material as right as 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 economic and kind of manpower related. They would like to uh, do get more soldiers onto the front line so that they can ro- rotate some of their soldiers outright, have have much fresher personnel, reduce some of this political tension that's that it, that exists in Russia related to the mobilized soldiers and their inability um, to have any sort of leave, etc. Um, on the other hand, they, they may, might not even want them or feel it's really that necessary for them to have a leave just because they don't want all these soldiers right going back to, to Russia and telling you know bad stories about how how d- tough and difficult it is there but on the other hand right especially after Putin's election uh, he'll be in this position where he'll certainly signal to the West that he's unconstrained from you know continued mobilization continued volunteer campaign um, and the the threat that the Russians will be trying to kind of hint at is that you know un- unless the Ukrainians are, are dealing tens of thousands of, of, of casualties to the Russians, you know, a, every year, um, probably even more like hundreds, um, then the, the Russians will be able to say, oh, we can actually continue to re- replace this manpower. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, yeah, Ru- the Russia's goal for 20, uh, 2024 is really to uh, continue to make small gains on the front while continuing to, to, to signal that they're prepared for a, a long-term war of attrition which, in which they'll have advantages and really focusing on fueling uh, uh, this uh, right, uh, war, f- war fatigue in the West. And can you talk about uh, what Ukraine's goals will be both as of now and uh, as they respond to Russia's strategy for this year. Uh, and how likely will it be for Ukraine uh, to achieve these goals that they set out to um, accomplish? Yeah, I think Ukraine's goal for 2024 is really to preserve, preserve their manpower, preserve their resources uh, while dealing disproportionate damage to the Russian forces. Um, right, I think the Ukrainians are, you know, rather correctly surmising that creating some sort of large-scale breakthrough, um, like what like or, uh, happened already during this war around Kharkiv, um, uh, or what was hoped would happen in 2023 with regards to southern Ukraine, um, right, that something like that is is quite unlikely. Mainly because there's, I mean, there's not enough of basic uh, uh, capabilities like artim- artillery ammunition, right. So uh, the Ukrainians really need to, to, to focus this year on, uh, again, as I said, preserving their resources, realizing that amid this uh, malaise in this West and kind of this inability to grasp the strategic uh, uh, weight of this moment and the implications of a Russian victory in Ukraine, um, they actually need to uh, preserve what they have um, and think about how, okay, even if it's not this next year in 2024, then maybe we can return to a more decisive after degrading Russian forces when the West, right, if, if political winds change in the West, if uh, this period largely passes of, of, of inviting over Ukraine support, then we can be in, in, a, in a position to, right, re-increase re, uh, pressure on the Russians at a time when maybe, uh, right, their economy is in a worse state or they're less able to mobilize things like that. Um, so yeah, I think that the Ukrainians are, are I mean their their goal their, or how they're going to achieve that is is in a strangely somewhat similar to the Russians. Um, the Ukrainians also might attempt some very small scale 
offensives, I think mainly in, again, also eastern Ukraine, uh, maybe 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 the central Donetsk region around Bakhmut, or, or small areas where they can, you know, go to their western partners and say, look, we're continuing to, to gain ground, we're not losing ground, um, we're dealing disproportionate damage to Russian forces, um, but largely... Uh, again, pres- preserving what they what they have, and and really trying to signal that no, we're still here, and as long as war fatigue doesn't continue to grow in the West, then we'll be able to right effectively continue resisting the Russians going forward. We just need the West to really, um, you know, gr- again grasp the 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 importance of this moment, uh, and around the time, for example, of the NATO summit in Washington uh, in July of this year. Uh, make much more decisive decisions about, you know, ramping up production and, and, and making uh, long-term security commitments uh, in Ukraine in all kinds of form, both the political form, but also, of course, the, the military material form. Um, so I think that that's, that, that's really going to be um, uh, the, the, their, 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 their focus. Um, and I think that uh, it's important for them to be clear about that just because, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, um, for the Ukrainians, uh, uh, the, you know, in the West, a lot of this opinion, I mean, if you look at polling, it shows that, that uh, you know, support for Ukraine remains quite high and quite stable. Uh, the problem is, is that the kind of the intensity and the interest right amid other crises around the world has somewhat fallen. Uh, and then the other thing going on is, is that there, uh, there is a little bit more of the skepticism about how Ukraine um, thinks it, it, it can win the conflict. Um, because Western audiences become they're, right, they're less interested in whether whether or not something is actually in their interests, um, and, and and more interested in, in this idea of um, you know the, the 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 side that we're supporting um, gaining some sort of decisive victory. Um, because because of that, I mean this this word or this idea of vision vision for victory is going to be important. I think that the the Ukrainians, you know, are going to have to become more clear eyed about that both domestically. And on the international um, stage, uh, and if they do that, I think that they can continue to, you know, receive uh, the support they need to continue resisting the Russians. But if they don't, right? If if uh, political winds in the West don't go in that direction, or if we see strong signs that the West actually wants to to pressure Ukraine into to, to, to essentially capitulate to Russian demands uh, for a, for a ceasefire, then I mean that that could happen probably around the very end of this year. Um, and then, you know, then we, we, we could see um, the start of, of some sort of negotiation with Russia maybe in 2025. I think that that's what Russia is looking at uh, and probably considers its, its, its baseline or most likely scenario at this point. Um, but, you know, war is, is, is a very unpredictable and, and highly contingent um, field. And so a lot remains to, to be seen. And a lot, you know, is, is really a political decision in the hands of the West, right? How much, how much are they really willing to pump up production? Um, how, when are they willing to make those investments, um, etc.? So um, it's going to be it's going to be a really you know grueling, decisive year in the war. Even if ground doesn't change that much, I think that due to these political dynamics and due to the way that the nature of the war has shifted in 2024 versus 2023. That um, it's it's still going to to shape up to be a year that you know analysts consider to be uh, decisive uh, with regards to its trajectory. Thanks, Matt. Um, just one final question, kind of going off of what you were mentioning with a lot of the military military side of things. Um, can you speak to the impact of U.S. presidential outcomes given Biden and Trump's vastly different approaches to the to involvement in this conflict? 
how crucial of a role does U.S. leadership play in the trajectory of the war? Yeah, U.S. leadership is absolutely um, essential, right? Um, the, the Europeans, both on the financial side and on the military side, can't, you know, rep- replace the United States. Um, yeah, the, for just as one obvious example, the U- Ukrainians don't need, make nearly enough of the artillery ammunition needed to allow the Ukrainians to defend themselves, right? So um, if the U.S. stopped supplying that ammunition, you know, hypothetically under, uh, uh, for example, a Trump administration, uh, this would, again, this would be in 2025. But yeah, I mean, that, that, would, that, that could force Ukraine um, to, to capitulate to Russian terms in, in a matter of months, probably. Um, so again, we, we, we don't know, we don't have a very good grasp or, uh, I mean, we certainly know the directionality that, you know, a Trump administration or a, you know, a, a completely Republican run Congress would take, which would be, um, essentially, you know, dieting the, the Ukrainians, you know, in, in the best case scenario and the worst case scenario, kind of going cold Turkey on them and, and, and seeing what happens and seeing how the Europeans react, um, but yeah, I, either of those scenarios, um, you know, would, would very rapidly lead to uh, the Ukrainians, you know, capitulating to Russian terms, and at some point, probably by the end of, of 2025 or maybe 2026. Um, on the other hand, right, if we see Biden reelected, or if we see uh, that the Democrats, you know, keep their position in Congress, or maybe even re- re- retake control of the House, then we could get in, get in a position where. You know, you get people of very different views, kind of uh, in, in office, who really think that actually it's our military-industrial complex, right? Our GDP of the West that's twenty something like twenty-five times larger than Russia's. That if we just mobilize sufficiently, um, then we can again put the Ukrainians back in a position to to deal a decisive blow to to the Russian army, um, and and eventually, uh, you know, get get the Russians to be prepared for a real negotiation, right? Uh, not not essentially a capitulation to, uh, to 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 Putin's demands. So yeah, I mean political developments in the in the West absolutely are decisive, and we we know for a fact that you know the Kremlin is is, is watching them very closely. Well, we'll definitely be on the lookout for updates from you um, as this develops. Again, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights, Matthew. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, thanks for having me. You can read more of Matthew's analyses by subscribing to our geopolitical intelligence product, Rain Worldview. Our suite of risk products allow clients to access the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions. You can sign up or learn more at our website, rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.